This is the fifth Sunday of Easter, and we once again, after last week, have moved from the early weeks of the great 50 days of Easter, where we read uh, resurrection appearance stories, to now the readings in the course of the history of salvation. We've talked about this, one of the parts of the fourfold shape of the Easter liturgy. We're reading about how the early church is appropriating the resurrection faith and how it understands its vocation and role in the world and how it understands its, the way it is constituted as a community of faith. So we have a reading from First Peter this morning which um, I'm going to preach about, and then uh, the early part of uh, John's Gospel's farewell discourse. Jesus uh, is uh, speaking to his disciples because of their separation anxiety. And how are they going to now function uh, when he leaves them? And what are some of the things that they, they have, resources that are available to them? Remember, all of these readings follow the pattern. Easter is the ground zero of the church year, and it sets the pattern for the whole of the liturgical year. And the three great theological themes that we've, we are presented this time of year are God's light, God's life, and God's love. And the readings are going to be in some fashion about those three themes uh, moving forward. First Peter, if it was written by First Peter, would have had to have been written no later than 68 A.D. Because that's when he was martyred. Somewhere between 62 and 68, he was martyred in Rome. And many biblical scholars believe that this letter is really a baptismal homily. So it was a sermon that was preached at baptism. And it is an extended reflection about how the community of faith is constituted through baptism, grafted onto the body of Christ, how it understands the nature of its empowerment, and how people individually and corporately can be strengthened to be God's people in the world. And so two important themes emerge in this reading from 1 Peter. The first is a theme that we hear elsewhere in the New Testament, and that is Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And Peter is quoting the Psalms here and other parts of the Hebrew Bible where he speaks about Jesus and uses this metaphor as the chief cornerstone. I was thinking about how this might have resonance to uh, the original hearers or readers of this letter. And you know, in the uh, Greek New Testament, Jesus is referred to often, and, and there's been a whole lot of uh, sentimental music and poetry and everything about Jesus as the carpenter. The word in Greek uh, that is used to describe his work and his father's is tekton which you can translate uh, in more than one way. And as people have begun to study you know, the, this literature and do more thinking about the words, tekton can mean carpenter, it can mean contractor, it can mean stonemason. He very well could have been uh, trained to be a stonemason. If he's the chief cornerstone, that would be an interesting thing 
uh, about how people would understand Jesus in this way. So I just thought I'd uh, speak to you about that. Jesus is the cornerstone, the centerpiece of our support and our sustenance and our strength. But the most important section of this reading is from the, the conclusion where Peter refers to the community of faith as a royal priesthood. And I thought I'd speak about this because some of you may have heard the term the priesthood of all believers. Dr. Reginald Fuller, who was one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century, says in his commentary, this section from 1 Peter is the locus classicus for the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Here's a little history. This is, I thought... I might be losing you as I do this in in the the sermon today, but I'm just taking a chance on this. In the 16th century, in the Protestant Reformation in Europe, uh, the reformers began to advance the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, or at least they revived it and placed it at the center. But here's the thing. One of the things that they were doing what was um, engaging in a polemic. Just so you know, I'm going to use the word again. Polemic means an aggressive attack on or refutation of the opinions or principles of another. And the reformers were engaged in a polemic against an overweening understanding of the ministerial priesthood in the medieval church. And so the focus on the priesthood of all believers uh, was done in such a way as to appear to deprecate the ministerial priesthood. So what you need to know is that while Protestants speak about the priesthood of all believers as the principal focus and responsibility for the spread of the gospel... Anglicans, Roman Catholics, and Eastern Orthodox also accept the view of the priesthood of all believers, but they understand that we have three priesthoods in the church, not one. We have the priesthood of all believers, which is the royal priesthood about which Peter speaks about today. We have the ministerial priesthood, those who preside at the liturgy and the sacraments. And we have the priesthood of Christ, as it is described in the epistle to the Hebrews. And so it's important to say that while we understand through our baptism that we now become part of the priesthood of all believers, this is how it is understood in the world. The priesthood of of all believers is ethical. It is not cultic. Every one of us has a responsibility to be transparencies and reflections of the gospel of Christ to the world. And you hear me say to you over and over again, this does not mean the mastery of an abstruse or difficult religious vocabulary. You don't have to turn into somebody wearing a sandwich sign 
and handing out leaflets to be an exponent of the gospel. You do it by reflecting back to other people being the best human being that you can be. And by virtue of that, you in some way have a transforming effect on others. How do you do that? Well, one of the ways you do it is to share the practical wisdom that you've learned through living and how that has impacted your emotional, spiritual, and mental states and how that might uh, connect to Jesus Christ as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template we lay over our own spiritual life and development, and more to the point, how the early Christians who were his followers understood his humanity and that he had achieved the highest of his human potential and by extension as the template, we will be able to do that as well and make a difference in the world. So when Peter speaks about being a royal priesthood, this is very, very important. And it means that you and I can make a difference in the world. It also means, of course, that there is something called the ministerial priesthood, which are part of the offering of the spiritual sacrifices that we believe are important and essential to our common life. So, to John's Gospel. This is chapter 14. The farewell discourse lasts from chapter, uh, verse 31 of chapter 13 and goes all the way into chapter 17. So this is fairly early on. And Jesus is speaking now about his departure. This is spoken during the Last Supper, by the way. So he hasn't been crucified yet, but it's coming. And he's speaking about some things that he wishes to leave with them. And there are three basic themes in today's gospel. The promise of an abiding place with God. The second theme is a sure and clear way to God. And the third theme in today's gospel is the power to sustain the believing community. In other words, you and I will receive the internal resources, the self-regulation necessary to be able to meet the challenges and the opportunities in front of us and to sustain the Christian community when he's left. And next week we're going to read about the coming of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. Those of you who've been around the church for a while anyway know that there was uh, the authorized version of the Bible is still the King James Bible, a triumph of the English language. And in this uh, gospel in, King, in the King James Version, it says, In my Father's house are many mansions. So in the New Revised Standard Version, the translation is, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. And those of us who wish to persist in being elitist snobs prefer mansion over dwelling places. But just so you know that we can get uh, ourselves jammed up if we get too high and mighty about that, 
I thought this week I'd look it up in the Greek. And what it says in the Greek text is uh, what is used for dwelling places is the noun of the verb to abide. So that would mean what? Abode. In my father's house are many abodes, dwelling places. Now the benefit of saying mansions may be that it gives us some idea of the abundance of God. So that each of us has a dwelling place with God that is going to seem in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states uh, like a mansion. A nice place to be, an elegant place to be, a beautiful place to be. In the ancient Near East, dwelling place had some significance in the religious practices of the people because it had something to do with, you know, booths and times of the year you build little abodes and you go live in them during this period and you do that sort of thing. So that also resonates with people uh, in the ancient Near East. But sometimes, I know Father Emerson does this, he and I will just defiantly substitute mansions for dwelling places. This, by the way, is a reading that is read often at funerals. It's one of the Gospels that is suggested uh, as being read at funerals. And I think this also has something to do, in my father's house are many dwelling places, meaning that there is a plural understanding of who's there. And this will become important in a minute when we talk about a sure and clear way to God. Because what has come up now is what I mentioned last week. And that is that we have a fairly exclusive comment by Jesus in John's Gospel. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are many evangelical Christians in this country, some in the Episcopal Church, who believe because there are others in the Episcopal Church who believe that we need to understand this text in greater depth, and perhaps not to express it in the world with the hard edge that it would seem to have when we read it. And further, they believe that it deprives us of a substantial leg up to scare the daylights out of people if they don't accept Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Last week, I read to you a section from Dr. John McQuarrie's The Principles of Christian Theology, and I'm going to read it again because it bears on this, this reading. I would have to say that the word unique is not helpful in discussing the place of Jesus Christ. Not only Jesus Christ, but every person is unique, and therefore so is Muhammad and so is Gautama Buddha. 
in place of the words rejected, unique, final, absolute, I shall use the expression definitive for Jesus Christ as understood in Christian faith. He is definitive in the sense that for Christians he defines in normative fashion both the nature of humanity which he has brought to a new level and the nature of God for the divine logos expressive being has found its fullest expression in him. This is an affirmation of faith made from within history and not an attempt to pronounce from some vantage point above history. As such, it is content to make an affirmation about Christ and to refrain from negative judgments concerning the truth in other faiths. It recognizes that while Christ possesses fullness and a definitive status, our apprehension of that fullness is always imperfect. For me, David Brewer, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the way I expect to go to the Father. So who was the audience? This is a polemic. Who is it a polemic against? Well, let's think about some of the candidates. The Jews. The followers of John the Baptist. There still were some. There's still some alive today called the Mandeans. Who believed that John the Baptist was the Messiah. And maybe some of these obscure groups that began to emerge around this time that we call Gnostics, one of them that was certainly all over the place in the Johannine world, and those are the pneumaticoi. You know where we get the word spirit in Greek? The word is pneuma. You know pneumatic? Air. The pneumaticoi believed that Jesus was not really a person. He was a spirit. That the world isn't really real. It's sort of spirit. Jesus was sort of like a Surat painting. You know, pointillism. He was like you could put your hand through him. He wasn't really a person. A human being. The pneumaticoi had great influence on some people. So maybe John is speaking to them and saying, compared to that, he is the way and the truth and the life. So that's a possibility. In any case, we think to ourselves, all right, we know that our statements about who God is and who Jesus is and so on are in some way provisional because of our inability to know absolutely. But how do we continue to have strength in the middle of the ambiguities and uncertainties, both personally and corporately? And at the end of today's gospel, we receive some assurance that we will be able to do even greater works than the Savior. That as we persevere in prayer and in becoming the best human being that we can be, 
we will actually make a difference in the world. You know, you need to know this too, and you can't say it often enough. The kingdom of heaven is not somewhere else. The kingdom of heaven is not somewhere else. It's here. If you'd have spoken to Jesus about the kingdom of heaven being some other he wouldn't have known what you meant. Anytime we model the values of God's unconditional acceptance, love, and forgiveness, we bring in the world the kingdom of heaven present now. And he believed that in his earthly ministry, he was here to say, that's your job. If you follow me, that's the world that you want to create. So that in the absolutely most idealistic sense, we would be a world where people interact with one another as knowing that they're made in the image and likeness of God, where uh, unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love is the default position that we take with one another, and that we understand that that influences absolutely all aspects of human life and human endeavor. So Jesus said, if you persevere in prayer and mature in prayer, this is the uh, thing that you need to do. So this week, give thanks for being part of the royal priesthood. Give thanks for uh, the possibility that you are able to express to others your greatest place of safety and assurance. And give thanks to God for the possibility uh, that you'll be able to do even greater works than he did. Amen.